Amen. Oh, I love it when I tear up before uh, I get up to speak. <clears throat> Just give me a moment here. Ah, what's up, everyone? Uh, good morning. It's great to be together with you. We are in our series. We're on week three of our, of our series we're calling Dear Church, where we're going through uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, man, oh man, this is a, a messed up church. The church in Corinth is a hot mess. They're dysfunctional, they're immature, they're just, they're crazy, which makes me wonder, why did Ryan pick this book for us to study? You trying to say something? I mean, you know, if, if, if you know how we give subtle hints to people thinking, hey, you need this, you need this. Uh, if you get an email from someone and they forge you an article and it says like, how to shut up and listen? Hey, do check this out. You know, some of us would be like, cool article. Um, that, I would take that as a message, as a as a subtle hint. So is uh, Ryan passive-aggressively trying to tell us something? I don't think so, but praise God for the unity that we have here at Seacoast. But the thing is, unity needs to be protected. It needs to be cultivated because divisiveness can so easily seep in. It's so easy for divisiveness to seep in. I was on Twitter this past week perusing through, and I found a, a thread where people were sharing about all of the, the weird fights that have happened at churches and weird splits and schisms, that have things that have caused splits and schisms. I want to share a couple of these with you. Uh, there's a church, there was an argument that broke out over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Okay, and whether or not he should wear shoes on stage. This is, this is a real argument that broke out. I know some of Dom has a mustache every now and then. We can talk about that um, later. Uh, there was a fight that broke out over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Anyone dying to know the end of that one? A fight uh, over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. So who took the picture? Uh, and I'm wondering if it's, the, if it's the nice smiling Jesus with the awesome hair, you know, or is it like the shredded Jesus on the cross with huge lats? I, I, which picture are we talking about here? And finally, a disagreement over using the term pot luck or pot blessing. You know, we don't, we don't believe in luck around here. I've had it. So sure, these are, these are pretty absurd examples, but sometimes, you know, it doesn't take much for people to start fighting. It doesn't take much for us to become divisive. And the, so we, as, as a church, we need to be watchful. We need to be careful. We, we, there are things that can potentially sneak in to distract us and then ultimately divide us. And so we are not exempt from factions. We're not immune from potential uh, division. We need to be on guard against what will distract, what would divide us. We need to cultivate unity. At the very beginning, or near the beginning of Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, he says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. And so the church is to be unified. And unity is so important. It's not just so, oh, it feels so good because we all get along. No, there's something way bigger at stake here. You see, the church, the people of God, we exist not only to declare what the gospel is, we, we exist to demonstrate what the gospel does. And this is so cool because the gospel is the good news that, that God has reconciled us to himself. 
He's forgiven us. He's united us with himself and to each other. And so we get to put this gospel on display by living and, and living as a united people. And so although in this room, there are so many, so many of us that are so different, but it's not our differences that define us. It's Jesus Christ who defines us. And through our unity around Jesus, we get to be a demonstration community that testifies to the fact that the gospel is actually big enough. The gospel is actually powerful enough to bring together what the world and sin tend to separate. We get to put that on display by cultivating, by protecting our unity. I was thinking about it. I mean, and think about this. Our, it is an act of faith. Our unity is an act of faith in and of itself. And it's faith uh, by being unified around Jesus. We are choosing to believe that the gospel is actually true. And that we are not defined by our differences, but we're defined by our deliverer, Jesus Christ. And so unity, it needs to be preserved, needs to be protected. And this was Paul's huge concern writing to this church in Corinth because they were seriously messed up. They were fragmented. There was some serious drama going on. The wheels are falling off of this place. There's fighting, there's bickering, there's quarreling. And so we're going to jump in and we're just going to talk about some drama today. Is that all right with you guys? I know it's pronounced drama. I'm just saying drama for the fun. Um, like, he doesn't know how to say drama. That's weird. Uh, so if you have your Bible, let's open up to 1 Corinthians 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be looking at two different things. We're going to be looking at first how to break a church. That's right. We're going to learn how to break a church. Uh, and the second thing we're going to look at is, to how, is how to build a church. So first, let's look at how to break a church. Guys, I have some proven strategies for you. This is great. This is great. Actually, actually, Paul has some proven strategies for you. So first things first, you want to break a church, make it all about yourself. Or not yourself. Make it all about a person. Make it all about a person. Check this out. Chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For, one, for when one who says, I am of Paul, and then another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? When, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So really quick, before we jump into making it about a person, I think this is an important point we need to make that notice first off that Paul is writing here to believers. He's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, they're extremely immature infants in Christ, but they are in Christ. And this is a good reminder of two different things. First, that there is no such thing as instant maturity. Maturity takes time. It's a process. But also there's the, the second thing, is that a mere lapse of time does not automatically bring Christian maturity. How long you have been in Christ is not, does not indicate your level of maturity, or where your level of maturity is. Because there are people who have grown up in the church, they've been going to Bible studies and pot blessings their entire life, who are still in spiritual diapers. And on the, same, on the other hand, there are people that are fairly new to being in Christ 
who are well beyond their years in terms of spiritual maturity. But here's the thing that we need to, we need to see is that no matter where your maturity is, it's easy for us to be like, you're not mature, you're, you're not Wherever you're at, know this, that your level of spiritual maturity does not dictate your spiritual location. See, Christians are those who have Christ in. Christian, Christ in. Your spiritual location is in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You're new. You're a child of God. You have a new heart. You have the DNA of the Father infused in you. So maturity and identity, although related to one another, they're not the same thing. And this is important because you know, spiritual maturity, it's not the process of going out and getting what you don't have. It's the process of developing and growing, growing accustomed to what you already possess. I mean, think about it. When a baby is born, it's not born with no arms. And then later on, it comes, the arms come out like a little polywog, you know, turning into a frog. No, no, a baby is born with all of the, the physical equipment that the little baby needs, you know, little eyes and toes and fingers and hands, a heart. And they have, they have everything. They're the complete package. They're infused with mom and dad's DNA. They lack nothing. They're complete. And the same is true of us in Christ. When we're spiritually born again, that's why the Bible refers to it as being born again. When we're spiritually born again, you're made new, whole. You lack nothing. You have everything that you need in order to become mature. And so it's only a matter of development until you function in a mature way. So Paul here is not calling out, um, he's, what he's uh, not questioning is their spiritual location. He's calling out the lack of maturity. You see, it's entirely possible for us to be in Christ, to be in Christ, spiritually located in Christ, but to live according to the flesh with worldly wisdom. And this is what Paul is calling out. And the particular flavor of the flesh that he's calling out here is jealousy and strife. You see, some were saying they're all about Paul. Some were saying they're all about Apollos. And so if you want to break a church, make it all about a person. You know, we have Paul who planted the church and then he left and then other people came in and started to, to continue on the work there. And then people were now beginning to play favorites. They're playing favorites and they're comparing their teachers and their leaders much in the, in the same way that we do like celebrities and athletes. You know, we've, we've got Team Paul over here and they're like, dude, T, Paul is like legit. He's the OG guy. He started this whole thing. He's like our founding father. He's, a, he's, the, he's an amazing teacher. I love Paul. You know, then Team Apollos is, uh, they're like, no, 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 no. Apollos, he's got serious game. Paul doesn't have the eloquence or superior wisdom that Apollos has. Apollos, he preaches passionately. Dude, he gets me fired up. Unlike Mr. Dry and Boring Paul. I mean, I heard one time he was teaching and someone fell asleep and they fell out of a window and died. That's Paul. And Paul, he hears this and he says, enough. He confronts the whole divisive debate. He says, y'all are acting like a bunch of babies. Like kids on the playground saying, my dad can beat up your dad. See, jealousy and rivalry, these aren't the attitudes and actions of spiritually mature men and women. No, jealousy, rivalry, these are the attitudes and actions of immature people who are walking, choosing to walk in the flesh. And Paul says, I've had to feed you milk. You're not ready for solid food. You know, and being a new dad, I'm learning about this. I'm learning when is the baby ready for solid food? And Paige is helping me figure this out because I don't know. I don't remember not eating solids. Do you? 
And apparently, babies, they're not ready for solids right away. They have to have like teeth and stuff. I don't know. And so milk is awesome uh, for a baby. And Archer, he loves milk. He loves drinking it and unfortunately loves spitting it up all the time. Um, <laughs> but it makes sense for milk to be a big part of his diet. But if he's like 10 years old and still on a milk-only diet, okay, it would be very easy to feed him. I'd like that. But we also would have a problem, all right? So milk is great, but a healthy diet will eventually include solids. And so Paul, he hears about this rivalry that's going on, about who's the better teacher, the leader, and he makes these comments about milk and the Corinthians not being ready for solid food. And, uh, you know, I'm curious, like, what is this, how does the diet and all of this stuff relate to the way the Corinthians were behaving? And what's the connection? And I found an interest, interesting companion passage I want to share with you guys in Hebrews 5. The author of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 5, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Verse 13. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So interestingly enough, the author defines an infant living on milk as someone who is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Well, what is the teaching about righteousness? The teaching about righteousness, simply put, is this. In Christ, you are righteous. You are right. In Christ, you are enough. You have the stamp of approval, the official stamp of enoughness placed on your life. You see, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were made righteousness. And so an infant living on milk is someone who doesn't yet understand the implications of that. An infant living on milk is someone who is tr still trying to be righteous versus trusting that they already are righteous. And so here's the thing. When we forget or we choose not to believe the teaching about righteousness, we will always, always go looking for it. We'll always go shopping for it. Shopping for enoughness. And one way that we, we try to gain a sense of rightness, one way that we go out and shop for it and look for it, is, and this is what we see happening here in Corinth, is that we, we, uh, we think that by associating ourselves with the right people and the right personalities is what is going to get it for us. You see, if I associate with a better teacher, it makes me a better person than you who associate with that mediocre teacher, let's be honest, uh, and this kind of thinking right here is, is really, it's the wisdom of the world. The world says, if you want to be somebody, you want to stand out, you want to be a winner, then you need to associate with the powerful. You need to associate with the popular. Get in with them. That's what is going to do it for you. Then you're going to be significant. Then you're going to be enough. Then you will be righteous. God's wisdom, which is foolishness, according to the world, it says this, Check this out. This is really, really foolish. It's believing that someone else made you righteous. Not you. Someone else made you righteous. It's believing someone else made you righteous and then resting in that. And if you think about it, that is true humility, is it not? True humility is accepting and trusting God with who you are not trying to strive for it yourself, 
but to receive it from him. Trusting that you don't have to strive, you don't have to shop, trusting that you are already righteous, you are already enough. Because when we forget that, we will end up doing what the Corinthians were doing here, what Paul is correcting them for in an effort to manage our persona and convince others that we're cool, do we're relevant or whatever. We make, we make sure to associate with the right kinds of people and we make it all about a person. We make it all about a person because really it's all about us. And this happens in the church a lot. You know, I, I, I love like reading. I love all of the books, all of the podcasts out there, all of the different ways that we can learn. We live in a time and an age where there's such amazing access to such great teaching and content out there. It's, it's a, we're not, we're not short on any supply of, of great content and teaching out there. I love it. But when we start to measure and compare ourselves with others based on what books we read or the teachers, the pastors and leaders that we follow, when that becomes the lead horse in our life, then we're acting like a bunch of babies. You know, one way to break the church is to make it all about a person, a pastor, a teacher, a certain mentor, a Bible study leader, a ministry leader. And by all means, let's listen to them. Let's learn from them. Let's enjoy what they're teaching. Let's, there's a lot of resources out there, but remember this. The men and women you follow, the, the ones you listen to, the, the books that you read, all that, they are, all of those people, they are unable to make you righteous. They can't make you righteous. They are servants that exist to point you to Jesus, who is your righteousness. That's what they exist to do. So you want to break the church? You know, forget your spiritual location. Walk according to the flesh. Strive for your own righteousness. Make it all about a person. That's the first thing. Secondly, if you want to break the church, this is a good one. Believe you can make it grow. You want to break the church? Delude yourself into thinking that you can control other people's growth. That their growth is your responsibility. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And it's such a a crazy mystery. Somehow, so God ordained it that we would be his ministers on earth, using our efforts, the things that we do, but that apart from his blessing, all of our efforts would fail. But that's how God has ordained and designed it to be. But we tend to believe that with enough creativity or innovation, if we can just figure out the right way, or we can be, you know, provable, measurable, repeatable process, that we, we can get people to grow. And as convenient as that might be and might sound, it's a fool's errand. You know, I fall into this trap myself all the time. I think that, man, if I just say it the right way, if I can just articulate the gospel and just in a clear enough way, that person's going to get it, they're going to grow. And then when they don't, I think it's because I didn't do a good enough job. And so, don't get me wrong, I think it's, it's great to look for ways to say things clearly. It's good to, 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 you know, to make the gospel understandable to people, helping them grow and understand God's grace. But, for me to believe that my articulation of the gospel 
is what causes growth. That is both wrong and it's a burden that I cannot bear and neither can you. It's God that causes the growth. And notice that it's, it includes planting, it includes watering. So this is a community project. It includes both. There needs to be planting, there needs to be watering. So this is not a solo sport. It's not a competition between Christians and it's not a contest between churches. We're just called to plant and water the seed of the gospel and allow God to bring the growth. We can't control the outcome or the pacing of growth. We can point people to Jesus. And this is really encouraging and really freeing if you let it sink in. I mean, think about it even as parents. Some of you are parents. You know, no matter what you do, you cannot, cannot make your child grow. Let God handle that. What you can do is point your, chi- your child to Jesus and his unstoppable love for them. And not just when they are doing good, but when they're doing bad. Not just when they succeed, but when they fail. You know, as we interact with our neighbors and coworkers, it's good to remember we're not responsible to see that their lives change. But at the same time, God loves and he desires to express himself through you. And he'll use even your imperfect and throwaway moments to woo people to himself. But the pressure's not on you. You know, it's the fall. We're kicking off a lot of our life groups. Groups are getting going, and hey, <laughs> you, get, you get a size of the, that, uh, that group of people into a living room, you know, it, it's going to get messy. Some of you guys stay far away from groups because of the, the mess you've encountered in the past. But, you know, like toes, toes will get stepped on. It's going to get messy. But here's the thing. We can relax. We, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He knows what he's doing. And we resist the urge to judge people for where they happen to be on their, their journey to maturity. We point one another to Jesus, knowing that God is at work and he is the one growing us. And, and here's the, a really big important point too, is that this is not just a, a thing for us as we, or how we see others. It's not just, oh, I can't control other people's growth. It's, this is something, that, this is also how you see you. How many of us are, are getting down on ourselves because we're, we feel like we're supposed to grow faster? We're supposed to be further along than we are now. I know I do that. It's easy to beat myself up for that. But know this. God started something in your life and he's going to finish it. The work that he began, he is faithful to complete the work. And so for us, let me encourage you just to embed yourself in a community that will continue to point you to Jesus. He's the finisher. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. And so if you're feeling bad about where you're at, like, man, I just can't, ah, it's like three steps forward, five steps back, and you're just feeling stuck. Know this, you are right on time. Keep looking to Jesus. He's actually excited and faithful to finish what he started in your life. So if you want to break a church, try to control the growth. Make it about a person. Thirdly, Build it on something other than Jesus. This is a good one. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, 
If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any, man, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And there's a lot in this chunk that we could unpack. But Paul, he's changing the metaphor from plants to buildings. And he's saying the foundation has been set. I, I laid the foundation for the church. It's Jesus Christ the foundation is Christ, it is set. But hear this, it's entirely possible for us to say, yeah, the foundation is Jesus, that's great. And then to move on, building on top of that foundation with worthless materials. He talks about wood, hay, straw, gold, silver, costly stones. The point is that the kinds of materials that we use to build one another up, those materials matter. And so the question is, what are you building with? What are we building with? How can we know if what we're building is even going to last? That's a good question. How do I know? Well, so far, Paul, in his letter, he's been contrasting two different perspectives. Paul's been contrasting living according to the spirit of the world, which is flesh, the flesh, and that has been contrasted with living according to the Spirit and the wisdom of God. And I think what he is saying here is that anything done in the flesh, that is not going to last. Anything done in the flesh is going to burn. You know, in his letter to a different church, Paul spent some time listing out all of the things that he could boast about. All of his impressive resume, he laid it out. He was the best of the best of the best in his category. And then he gets this point in Philippians Three, he says, we are those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says this, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Do you see, Christ is not only the foundation that we build on. He is the imperishable and indestructible material that we build each other up with. He's not only the foundation that we build on. He is the imperishable. He is the indestructible material that we are called to build one another up with. And so it's so easy for us to slip into this thinking as a church where it becomes about, okay, Jesus, awesome. That's great, Jesus. But now let me look at, that's, thank you, Jesus, for what you did over here. Now let me strive and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from here. So subtly, the Christian life becomes about our performance for God, our work for him versus his work for us, his performance for us. It becomes about us and we reduce the, the good news of the gospel, and we turn it into good advice and boiling Christianity down to just action steps that we need to take in order to keep God pleased with us. And don't get me wrong, I love action steps, but clear action steps will never change me. Being told what to do can't change me. 
It can't change you either. What does change us is standing in awe of what God in Christ has done. And so whether it's our parenting styles or politics, you know, the careers we have or social justice or worship styles, all of the different things that tend to divide, divide the body. When we emphasize that our spiritual growth and maturity is about conformity to my way of doing things, more than just a simple worship of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, then we're building with wood, hay, and straw, and that just is not going to last. All of that will burn away. Colossians 2, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So Paul is making it clear here that, G- that Christ is the foundation, that Jesus, he's the gold, he's the silver, he is the costly stones that we are to build with. He is all and in all. We are to grow up into him who is the head, Jesus. So you guys feel pretty uh, equipped to break a church? You know, we've, we've looked at how to break a church, you know, make it all about a person, try to control the growth and, and build on something other than Jesus or build with things other than Jesus. But I think it'd be better for us to close with how to build a church and on a healthy note. And the first thing we see from this text is to re- how to build a church. Remind one another of who we are. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. So in a very classic way, Paul directs his audience, his readers, to the truth of their identity. You see, everything that we do, all of our actions, ultimately flow out of a belief of, in who we are. It flows out, all of our activity flows out of identity. And Paul says, Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you are? You are the temple of God. And we read that sometimes. We're like, oh, cool, huh? Next. But as Paul is writing this, it's interesting. Temples are a big deal. Temples are still a big deal. Maybe not to us here in North County, but temples, at the time he's writing this, temples were a very big deal. Temples were trending. You know, in the pagan temples, they contained a statue of a god. The Jewish temple was a symbol of God's presence. And Paul blows all of that out of the water and he says, no, no, no. You are God's temple and he lives in you. You are where God himself dwells. And this is the glory of the gospel. You see, we're not distant from God trying to please him. No, we are close. We are connected. We are united We are indwelt by God himself. You see, he cleaned house and he moved in and he is now in us at work, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. He's given us a new heart. He's given us new desires. He says, you are holy. Well, I don't feel holy. Well, feelings aren't the arbiter of truth. If God says you are holy, guess what? You are holy. If God says, you are righteous, guess what? You are righteous. 
despite how you feel. Our feelings are all over the place. And so the way that we build the church is by reminding one another of what God says is true. And then we encourage one another to live consistently with that truth. Another way that we see in this text of how to build the church is to not only remind one another of who we are, but to remind one another whose you are. Skipping ahead to verse 21. So then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things that come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Paul is giving us the big picture perspective here. There's no reason to boast in men. All men are just, they're just God's gifts to you. We don't need to become obsessed about the gifts. Let the gifts be a reminder of the the heart of the, the Father, the giver. And the truth is that as Christians, our ultimate significance doesn't come from who we associate ourselves with. Our significance is found in the fact that Jesus associates with us. He dwells with us, dwells within us. And so we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. We are wrapped up and inseparably secured to God. So you're his family. You lack nothing. You're you're complete. And so we need to remember who we are, remember whose we are. Let me invite the band to come back up and I'm going to close with just an analogy that I've used before. Um, I don't play much poker. Uh, Put my cards on the table here. I don't play poker very often. Um, But I know a little, a thing or two about it. And I know that when you're dealt some bad cards, (laughs) you get your cards, you look at them, you're like, dude, when they're bad, you don't want to risk anything. You know, you, you, you could go on, you could risk, you know, try to like stay in the game, you know, but like you'd have to bluff your way through that. So getting bad cards, it doesn't make you willing to risk. It just makes you want to just hold back and play conservative. But what if you were handed a winning hand? What if you looked at your cards, you're like, this is a winning hand. I, I don't know, I think a royal flush is the best hand that you can get. Someone's going to come up to me after the end of the service, like, actually, um, no, but <laughs> there's, there's always the well actually guy or girl. Um, but we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll just say a royal flush, you have the winning hand. How do you play the rest of that game? You go all in. You've got nothing to lose. You have the winning hand. And the same thing is true that in Christ, we are given the winning hand. We don't have to play conservative. We don't have to, to bluff our way through life and try to, you know, to, to strategize all of these different, we can just be free. We can enjoy the game. When you're bluffing, you're just, you're not enjoying your stress. I mean, you might be able to put a good poker face on, but when you have a winning hand, you're, you're, you're free. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're free. You're free to go all in. You're free to, 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 to lay it all on the line. You don't need to, to try and, and to conserve. You don't have to prove anything. So because we have everything that we need in Jesus, we can spend our lives giving for the sake of others instead of trying to get from them. You're, you are God's temple. This is your winning hand. You're holy. You're righteous. You're clean. You're close. 
You're united to Christ. So let's, let's plant, let's water, let's build one another up in these truths, and then let's celebrate as we watch God bring the growth. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for, the, for meeting us here where we're at God, we thank you for the growth that you've already brought about in our own lives. God, help us to help us to believe the truth of what you say about us. Lord, I know that in my own life each day there's evidence and different things to suggest that no, no, I'm not I'm not where I should be. I'm not where God wants me to be. And I'm t- I tend to just look, in, look inward to, to try to, well, I need to work harder. I need to behave better. I need to, me, 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 me. God, help me to be more about you, 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 and what you have done. Thank you for the love that you, you have for us on our best day, on our worst day. Thank you for calling us yours, for making us holy, righteous, And we want to respond to you now, God, in song as a way of saying, wow, as a way of saying thank you for who you are and what you've done.